leading us, I'm grateful for you being here. And I want you to take your Bible and find 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're in the second of a brief series entitled The Invitation. Jesus frequently presented the gospel of grace as an invitation. He invites people to be saved, to live life on a higher plane, and to enjoy the blessings of salvation in the here and now. This morning, I want you to see that Jesus invites us to a life of steadiness. In this world, you will experience times of great blessing and times of great loss. Sometimes you'll be filled with joy and other times it's dread or sadness. It's important to live with a spiritual equilibrium, a life where you're not thrown to and fro by the circumstances of life, always going here and then going there based upon whatever happens during that week or that month. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, be steadfast. Colossians 1.23 says, continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. So let's jump right in and get the context as we pray God would grant each of us this life of steadiness. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 5, Paul wrote, But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. Now drop down to verse 10. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. And then drop down to verse 18. Paul said, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy pastored the church at Ephesus. This is Paul's letter to Timothy, his second letter, to explain to him, to give him advice, and to encourage him, and to establish doctrine, by the way, but on how to pastor the church at Ephesus. In 1 Timothy, Paul warned him that this church had false teachers. He said some had suffered shipwreck of their faith. Some had deviated from the faith, still others rejected the faith, and still others paid attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrine of demons. This isn't a church. That church was a mess. Paul said others in the church wanted to get rich and fell into temptation and foolish snares. Both men and women forgot how to conduct themselves in the household of God, and the sins of some, therefore, were quite evident. Then we transition to 2 Timothy. This was Paul's dying declaration. He was executed shortly after he wrote this. He wrote this from an underground prison called the Mamertine Prison. It was a dungeon. The city's sewer system ran next to it. But he's not groveling or complaining. He's not wavering with his circumstances. His whole Christian life, he never turned to the left or the right, and he's about to tell us how to live this life of steadiness, and it starts with a reception of truth. Now, we tend to think that when it comes to Christianity, everything is always getting worse. When my files, I, I wasn't even looking for this, I stumbled across an old poll from George Barna in 1991. 
it said that 65% either strongly agree or somewhat agree that there's no such thing as absolute truth. I found a 2020 poll that said 60% of people believe that. So whether it's 1991 or 2020 or 2024, the starting point to a life of steadiness is to have a nonstop reception of truth. Jesus is truth. His word is truth. This Bible is the anchor of our life. So to live a life of steadiness, it starts with clarity in our thinking. Look at verse 4, or excuse me, verse 5, clarity in our thinking. It simply says, but you. Notice that conjunction, but. That indicates a change in direction. In the previous verses, Paul said the day will come when people will not endure sound doctrine. He said false teachers won't have to find people. People will find them. He says they will accumulate them, and they do it for a reason. He said the reason is they want to have their ears tickled. So verse 4 says they'll turn aside from truth and turn to myths. Verse 5 changes that direction. It says the follower of Jesus is to be the exact opposite. Look at it again. He says, but you... Be sober in all things. Not somber, but sober. That word sober can mean abstention from alcohol, but in this context, it expresses freedom from excess, passion, and confusion. Freedom from excess, passion, and confusion. Now, if, if you were on an airplane that hit major turbulence... You wouldn't want the pilot to get too excited, which would be excess, or to try something too drastic before it was necessary, which would be passion, and to remember his training so there's no confusion. Christian steadiness requires clear, rational, and logical thinking. Not excess, not passion, not confusion. Now today, satire is becoming reality right before our very eyes. I have to double-check when I read a headline to see if it's coming from the Babylon Bee or if it's the real thing, and I'm not kidding. Sometimes I say, wait, double back, was that, a, oh, that is true. That, that's not satire, that's incredible. In a world for whom truth is based upon excess, passion, and confusion, and churches that pendulum based upon what is popular today, we have to keep our thinking anchored rationally to God's word. Above all people, Christians should be clear thinking to be able to sensibly and accurately assess the events of our day and then resist the demonic pull upon us to reject emotional decisions and responses and refuse to compromise with the spirit of this age. I think this is the starting point and maybe the most important point. To live a steady life, there has to be clarity in our thinking, but we must also have faithfulness in difficulty. Verse 5, Paul said, endure hardship. Imagine trying to lead this church at Ephesus. I mean, not only do you have all the internal problems, Ephesus was filled with the worship of a false god named Artemis, also called Diana. Steadiness requires a willingness to endure hardship in a world that will worship person, place, or thing, but rejects Jesus Christ as Lord. But here's the question, where do we get the ability to endure that hardship? 
Well, Hebrews chapter 12 says, since we have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which so easily entangles us and run with endurance the race set before us. That verse refers back to the previous chapter, Hebrews chapter 11. That chapter is known as the Saints Hall of Fame. It gives us remarkable examples of endurance. Noah prepared an ark. That took endurance. Sarah endured for most of her lifetime to concede. It says Moses chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. But then that chapter goes on to say that others were tortured and others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. That's superhuman endurance. So we have all these amazing examples, but they aren't going to help you endure. I don't have what it takes to be sawn into, no matter how much I read Hebrews chapter 11. Well, maybe they had what it takes and we don't. That's not the answer. Hebrews 12.2 says to fix our eyes on Jesus. Now, there's the answer. Believe it or not, that's not the answer either, not completely. Hebrews 12.2 says, fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. That word author means to initiate. Jesus wrote his name on your life, and he who started your Christian life will perfect it he'll bring it to completion he will bring you through hardship lean into him and on him you won't come through it flawlessly Noah got drunk Sarah laughed at God's promise Moses killed an Egyptian I hope you don't go that far but trust in Jesus to endure hardship and he who started a good work in you will bring you through it until the day of Christ Jesus so there's clarity in your thinking, faithfulness in your difficulty. Number three, work in evangelism. Verse five says, do the work of an evangelist. Work. It may be something you find awkward that you don't really like, but the Bible says it's work. I used to tell my kids, work is not what you want to do. Work is what needs to be done. So I want to encourage you to invite people to church. It's a non-offensive way to a gospel conversation. And if a person comes, it puts them under the preaching of God's word, and faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of the Lord. For many of us, it's painful to have a loved one who we know isn't saved or sometimes we tell ourselves they are but in our heart of hearts we know and that kind of pain can mute our witness we can either fall into the satanic trap of being afraid to say the wrong thing or become wishy-washy because we're afraid of being labeled radical or judgmental or we become a de facto universalist who says the way is broad that leads to life and the way is narrow that leads to death Folks, when it comes to evangelism, speak the truth in love and leave the results to God. 
Speak the truth in love and leave the results to God. Never worry about evangelizing perfectly because you can't do it perfectly. Judas walked with Jesus for three years. Jesus never said one wrong word, never committed one single sin. Judas saw his signs and wonders. Storms were stopped. People were healed. Lazarus rose from the dead. Judas heard perfect sermons. He heard the Sermon on the Mount. He heard that there is a narrow road that leads to life and a broad road that leads to destruction. He heard about forgiveness. He heard about grace. Judas is evidence that perfect words, flawless examples, and even undeniable evidence won't change a person. So instead of letting fear deter a steady witness, recognize this truth is an encouragement. Tell people who Jesus is, how to have eternal life, but don't carry the weight of responsibility for what happens. Trust his wisdom and his work, and remember, the salvation of even the most impossible person is possible with God. I may not be exhibit A, but I'm in the ballpark. Work in your evangelism. And then fourthly, persevere in your ministry. Verse 5, he says, fulfill your ministry. Now, Timothy pastored at Ephesus. That was his ministry. But what about you? Many times in 28 years of ministry, a person has said to me, I don't know what my ministry is or I don't have a ministry. And it's a grievous thing to them. So I pray these next few moments will clear up the idea of having a ministry. It could be that you already have a fruitful ministry and you don't recognize it. Or if you don't have one, you can develop one. But the issue here is the word ministry. It might be defined differently than you think. When many people think of having a ministry, they think of a singular focus. It's one thing you do and other people draw from it. But the ministry that God created for most of us does not have a singular focus because God has more fruit in mind for us than that. The key to having a quote-unquote ministry is being steadfast, and here's how it unfolds. Just simply come to church on Sunday. Be part of a Sunday morning class. That's a key. And just keep doing that. Do it week after week and give it time. People get to know you, you get to know them. We pastors get to know you, you begin to know us. And as people learn more about you, they learn about your skills and your interests. You develop relationships. And one day someone says, hey, could you help with this? Or vice versa, you ask for help. And this is key. When you engage in any form of service, that's part of your ministry. For example, opportunities arise like the TES Carnival last week or our upcoming job fair in May. Or you get involved in student ministry or Awana or prayer meetings or you go on a mission trip. You serve with people here doing just seemingly everyday things. And without realizing it, your ministry has become multifaceted, multidimensional, and multigenerational. For example, did you encourage anyone this morning? Did you sympathize with anyone this morning? Did you serve in any area this morning? Did you greet anyone? Did you pray today? Those things are all part of a ministry, and it's far more important than you realize. Because day by day, week by week, as you live a steady life, 
your ministry grows and that ministry grows you. In the process, you learn to love the Lord God with all your mind, soul, heart, and strength. You gain wisdom, knowledge, and understanding and you apply it to your life. Now, how you serve will vary over the years, but if you look at the sum total of, let's say, 10 years, you've borne a lot of fruit. You've lived a Jesus-glorifying ministry. You bless people and please God, and what could be a better ministry than that? And by the way, that word ministry in verse 5, we get the word deacon from that word. That word means one thing, to serve. The investment of self to bless other people in the name of Jesus. So there's a life of steadiness, clarity in your thinking, faithfulness in your difficulty, work in your evangelism, and perseverance in your ministry. It all flows out of an acceptance of the truth. Number two, an acceleration of time. Look at verse six. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come already poured out his life is spent this life is a mist it's just a vapor that's passing away and it goes so quickly that it can seem like as you get older I know some of you will say amen to this you younger folks may not at all but I'm telling you it happens as you get older it seems like time accelerates the Bible says make the most of your time for the days are evil so don't waste time. Be on time. Soon you'll be out of time. Paul knows his life is over as he writes this. And in verse 6, it says he was being poured out as a drink offering. Numbers 15 says when a burnt sacrifice was offered, sometimes a little oil and wine was poured on it. That was the drink offering. The burnt sacrifice was a choice sacrifice, one offered in the Old Testament days for the atonement of sin. It was a picture of Jesus. The drink offering was a picture of adoration and worship to be poured out on that burnt sacrifice. Paul poured out the energy of his life for Jesus, freely given as an act of adoration and worship. He gave the fruit of his labors and the essence of his life, and all of a sudden it's over and it's time to go home. But this is not a lament. He's not complaining. He's rejoicing that he could expend his life in ministry and missions. And he could do that because he lived a steadfast life. Look at verse 7. He said, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I kept the faith. He lived a steady life, and now he's about to fruitfully cross the finish line. He said he fought the good fight. We get the word agonize from that word fight. You face a steady opposition, don't you? Sometimes it's like a conveyor belt of trouble. The pressures of this world, the failings of our flesh, the schemes of the devil. It's a fight to stay steady. In fact, every soul who comes to Jesus comes through a spiritual fight. Every bit of spiritual growth you gain comes through a battle. Every piece of spiritual ground you take comes through a fight. Every thought you take captive to Christ comes through a fight. But if your life is going to count, it's going to cost. So how can you battle through all this opposition? Now, this is counterintuitive. I'll answer that 
by asking another question. And it's really a serious question. It's not a, it's not a gotcha. Do you enjoy Jesus? Are you happy in him? Beware of having a half-hearted devotion to Jesus. You won't be happy in him, and you won't be able to fight against all that comes against you. And here's why. A divided heart wants to give itself fully to the ways and opinions of the world. In fact, it has its toes in the world's water when it really wants to go swimming. But that same heart also wants to follow Jesus. And because it's divided, it doesn't experience the blessedness of union with him. So it can't really enjoy pleasure without false guilt, but it can't really enjoy Jesus because it's not fully given over to him. How much time do you have left to be steady? Paul said, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. We went back to see my parents for a couple days. We just got back yesterday afternoon. Excuse me. And one thing that was really great was a couple of my friends from high school found out I was in town to stop by, and we had a blast visiting for a while. You know, it's great to see friends you haven't seen in years and years. I have a friend from way back in high school who lives in Olathe. We were close friends in high school. He was one of my running buddies. We were roommates for two and a half years in college. And you know how you lose track of people sometimes? To the shame of both of us, we hadn't talked in over 20 years. But I called him a week ago Friday. A week ago on Tuesday, he found his 25-year-old son dead on a couch in his basement. Headphones on, video game controller in his hand, no known cause of death. Thursday, they buried that 25-year-old son. A week ago Saturday, I got a call from a former professor at Fort Hayes State, another friend. Hadn't talked to him in years, had, didn't know he was disabled. He's headed to the Mayo Clinic. He has had Crohn's disease his whole life, with which we are all too familiar. And he called me to ask for prayer because his situation sounds very dire. Paul said, already, the time of my departure is near. How much time do you have left? The acceleration of time. And then thirdly, the fluctuations of today. Before Jesus, Paul was set for life. He was a Pharisee under the respected Pharisee Gamaliel. But he followed Jesus and all that. He forfeited all that prosperity in the process. And he experienced a roller coaster of a life, but he never wavered even though he had loneliness in his work. Look at verse 9. He told Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon. Well, no wonder he's in a dungeon. He needs Christian interaction, encouragement, and support. Every believer needs consistent Christian fellowship. Before we entered the ministry, Tara and I were, we never missed church. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And there wasn't, this is just confession time, there wasn't a single Wednesday night I looked forward to. Not one. It's okay, you can laugh because you're the same. (laughs) I was tired from work, hassled all week long, got to rush home, try to grab something to eat maybe. Tara and I heard three kids and then we drive 25 minutes. And there was, this was a small church. There were no kids activities, no nursery, no nothing. 
The kids just stayed in Bible study with us. We would take soft toys and Cheerios and lay them over here, and as long as they didn't try to, to murder each other, it was fine. And I know that sounds like an I walk five miles, uh, five miles uphill in the snow both ways story, but every week I didn't want to go. And we're driving there, and I didn't want to go. And then I'd been there for about five minutes, and I would think, I am so glad I'm here. I need this. Paul's in a horrible dungeon next to a sewer. He's sentenced to death, so he says, make every effort to come to me soon. Christians in the Bible aren't defined as individuals. We're sheep in a flock, soldiers in an army, and children in a family. We need each other to live a steady life. People in a church need one another because when you get saved, you don't fit in with this world any longer. The only place you really fit is with other people who love Jesus. So you stay steadfast through Christian fellowship. And what we see next is the danger when we don't. That is caution in your walk. Look at verse 20. It says, For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. While Paul finished the course, Demas failed the course. Elsewhere in the Bible, Paul lists Demas as a worker. Philemon, verse 24. Colossians 4.14 says, Luke, the dearly loved physician, and Demas send you greetings. Demas was faithful enough and fruitful enough that he's mentioned twice in Scripture, but he left the work. And the reason is not left to speculation. He left the work because he loved the world. Now, when we speak of the world in the Bible, what are we usually speaking of? We're speaking of the world's system, the values of the world. It's controlled by Satan and used against God's people. By the way, you will see the world system on steroids in Super Bowl ads today. <laughs> that wasn't a joke, but honestly, it's worth laughing at, isn't it? But it not only says Demas loved the world, it says he loved this present world. His eyes were not at all fixed on the things there or above. They were fixed on a world that is passing away like a misty fog in the morning. No man can do that and live a steady life. This world system is controlled by who? Satan, the prince of the power of the air. And every one of us live in this world, so it has this constant pull on us like gravity. Only a person devoted to Jesus surrounded by a church family, can live a steady life in the mess we're in today. And if you're steady, you will see victory in your death. Look at verse 18. He said, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. Now, wait a minute. He was about to die at the hands of Nero. And he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. And a verse like that can make a skeptic say, that's why I don't believe the Bible. Paul wasn't rescued. He was beheaded. That's an evil deed. So why would he say, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed? Well, the word deliver means to take from the presence of. There are two ways to be rescued from trouble. You can have the trouble taken away from you or you can be taken away from the trouble. You know, when a person is ill, we pray for their healing because we want them around us, we love them, we want to bless them, but there's something that's true for every one of us. One of these days, God's not going to take this sick body away from us. He's going to take us away from this sick body. 
So here's the difference between a believer in Jesus and someone who's never been born again. Both eventually run out of time, but the steadfast believer never runs out of hope. Look at verse 18. Paul said, he will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He made it. He lived a steadfast life, and so can you. I want to give you three quick applications. They're, just, they're very simple, very basic, very important. Number one, just believe the word of God. Paul said, I know who I have believed. Now, he's referring to Jesus. But this word is what reveals Jesus to us. Believe what it says about him and believe what it says about you. It promises to take the believer safely home to the heavenly kingdom. So believe the word of God. Here's the second thing. Pray for the wisdom of God. Pray for the wisdom of God. God's will for Paul was to be the point man for the spread of the gospel, and he was steadfast in it. To stay steady, hear me out on this, to stay steady, you need to live in God's will. I didn't say God's will for you. God has a will for all of us. Sometimes we complicate that greatly. Here's God's will. I'm going to tell you what God's will is for you. It's right here. It's found in his word. Applying this word to our life is his will. Applying this word to our life takes wisdom. That's one of the more difficult things in life. I like to call wisdom bringing the right Christian character trait forward at the right time. So we need wisdom. Pray for the wisdom of God. And then thirdly, trust, trust in the grace of God. Two chapters earlier, Paul said, if we are faithless, he, referring to Jesus, will remain faithful for he cannot deny himself. If you're saved this morning, Jesus has made himself one with you. He is the groom, we're the bride. He's the vine, we're the branches. He's the head, we're the body. He has so made himself one with us that to disown us will be to disown himself. So trust in his grace to keep you steadfast and trust in that grace to bring you all the way home. Now, this morning, if you've listened to this and you, you've, you've never been saved, you've never made that commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and experienced that new birth that the Bible talks about, that you're a new person, that you have new desires, new thoughts, then we want to invite you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, maybe this is, maybe, you, maybe you're a church member, and maybe this is your first time in church or anywhere in between. Paul said, I'm already being poured out. We have no idea how much time we have left. So if you never heard the gospel, never understood it, it's this simple. We're all born into sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And we will die because of that. We, and if we die in our sins, we'll spend eternity apart from Jesus. But God sent his own son, Jesus, to die on that cross in your place. Here's what that means. God wrath, God's wrath 
is upon every person who's never been saved. So if you've never been saved, God's wrath is hanging over your head right now. You say, that sounds like a threat. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. But God, Jesus died on the cross to take God's wrath for you. It can be completely removed and replaced by the complete forgiveness of sins. If you believe that Jesus died on that cross for you, was buried, was raised again, and therefore defeated sin and conquered death, simply believe that and you can have eternal life. Now, it involves repentance, a recognition that you're a sinner and you want to turn away from that sin, but at the exact same time, you turn to Jesus. You don't get your house right and then come to Jesus. You come to Jesus and he'll get your house right. It's not complicated. It's not difficult. It's simply believing. If you sense Jesus drawing yourself to him, then don't resist it. Just simply And how do you do it? You just believe. You can do that through a prayer just to solemnize it. I did that when I was saved. My prayer didn't save me. Belief saved me. But you can say, Lord Jesus, I I believe in you. I want to surrender my life to you here and now as long as that's sincere. It doesn't matter. Believe. I'm repeating myself. It's like a record on that's skipped. Only some of you don't know what a record that skipped is. You young ones, somebody can explain it to you. But it's, you can never repeat the gospel too many times. Recognize you're a sinner. Turn away from it. Believe in Jesus. Look, God is sovereign. It's no accident that we're here today. It's no accident that we got home on a four-hour drive safely. It's no accident you got up and came to church. He brought us here this morning. So if you've never been saved, recognize that God is working in your life in a way more powerful than you could possibly imagine.